This is Meatless, a podcast about eating from How We Get to Next. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food and drink writer. I'll be having conversations with chefs, writers, and more about how their personal and political beliefs determine whether or not they eat meat. The show asks the question, how do identity, culture, economics, and history affect a diet? In this episode, I talked to Luz Cruz and Ali Montes de Oca of the Queer Kitchen Brigade, a collective launch from New York after Hurricane Maria that is in solidarity with Puerto Rico's agroecology movement. We discussed their work on the island's farms, a recent trip to Mexico to work with Tijuana's Food Not Bombs, and the role of food in social justice movements. about having a name that rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like my Terry Gross question. I, I think that, like, yeah, people definitely like smile at it and they're like, oh, it rhymes. I also get a lot of people don't recognize that it is a like Spanish name and yeah. so they call me Luz. Oh my God. Which is like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> That's extremely strange yeah that instinct was. mostly yeah. like midwesterners oh yeah yeah the yeah. long year or something like that but yeah people <laughs> definitely take notice that my name rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. so can you each tell me about where you grew up and what you ate you want to go first <laughs> sure um i grew up in harlem new york city um what did i eat um when i was a kid well, <laughs> when I was a kid, I mean, my mom did a lot of the cooking when I was a kid. And so I ate, like, standard rice and beans and meat um, and, like, some sort of salad um, on the plate. Um, and then, like, shortly after she started working, which was just, like, when me and my little sister started going to school, my dad started cooking. And, like, my dad is, like, I think I get my love of food from my dad. Like, he's just, like, ter- as terrible as it is, he, like, loves watching the Food Network. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and is always, like, experimenting with, like, weird foods. And so, like, he, I mean, he would still feed us, like, definitely, like, standard, like, Puerto Rican dishes, but would also just, like, do some, like, weird things to food um, that, like, always turned out really good. And, like... Yeah, so I mostly ate rice and beans and, like, always meat and, like, definitely, like, some sort of salad on the table. What kind of weird things would he do? Uh, I think one time he made some, like, it was just, like, a weird French fry dish. <laughs> I don't exactly remember what was in it, but there was, uh, there was, like, meat and cheese and, like, he was just, like, I saw it on the Food Network and I was, like... <laughs> okay I'm gonna eat this but like this is weird or like he made this past Thanksgiving he made uh or rather Indigenous People's Day he made um these sweet potato like mashed sweet potatoes but he threw in like coconut milk instead of I don't know what else he would use, but he threw in coconut milk, and so they were like really sweet. And he and like and also threw in like a banana. Ooh. And I was like, "This is weird, but it's really good." <laughs> <laughs> so like he'll just do things like that, basically. 
Um, I grew up, I guess, mostly in Suffern, New York, which is like about an hour outside of the city. Um, very similar. Like, I remember eating a lot of fast food when yeah. we were younger. My parents were both working, so it was the easy option. <laughs> right, <laughs> but right, right. Um, when my mom cooked, it was usually just like rice and beans, some sort of meat, very similar. Um, and on the few occasions that my dad cooked, it was Eggo waffles. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so now both of you are very deeply involved in food. Uh, can you talk about how you got to this point and also what, what you are doing right now? <laughs> um, oh, I think that, like, I... I mean, I was I was raised in, like, a very typical Puerto Rican household. Both of my parents were born in Puerto Rico. Um, and um, while there was, like, some assimilation, um, there was also just, like, I grew up in Spanish Harlem, so I was always around a community of Puerto Ricans and have a huge family. Um, and so, like, food, like, food as, like, the central point to, like, having discussions or just gathering with each other was always a thing in my life. Um, and then also, like, my dad my dad loves plants, and my grandfather was a sharecropper in Puerto Rico. And so I have this, like, ancestral lineage of farming and food. Um, I mean, my dad has a coffee tree in his apartment in New York City <laughs> that grows coffee on it. Wow. Um, so, um, so I always grew up around food and farming in that context. Um, and then when I was in high school, I took a horticulture class and started growing like food in a greenhouse um, and becoming more like in touch with like land and actually like production of food and like the power that that has um and sort of from there I just like had various jobs I started working for Grow NYC um distributing uh um their like CSAs um and just getting more involved in the food justice world and for a really long time it was always food justice and how do I feed these like individuals, these, like, frontline communities that are affected by, like, all of these socioeconomic issues. Um, and then somewhere in there, I, I was like, I need to start growing food. Um, and so, you know, I started volunteering at the Halsey Community Garden in Brooklyn um, and eventually, like, got a job upstate farming um, and did that for a little while. Um, and then like, you know, in the past couple of years, it was just me traveling back and forth to Puerto Rico. And then recently, uh, in 2017, after the hurricane, um, I spent five months there, uh, doing work on farms, um, and just getting to know all of these people who had their land destroyed. Um, also getting to know all of these practices that like most people don't know about and like things that you can't learn in a farm school. Um, and so that's just... That's, like, sort of how I, like, got involved. I'm also a diabetic, and so, like, food is, like, actually, like, life or death for me in a lot of ways. Um, and so just needing to, like, have that be my focus for me personally and then also, you know, growing up in Harlem, people, like, don't have that much to eat. And, like, when they do, it isn't the best of things. And so how do I, like, do this work in a way that, like, honors those people and provides them with opportunity. Um, 
and honors like my ancestral lineage. And so like shortly after the hurricane, actually the night of the hurricane, there was a potluck dinner at my house. Um, and, um, shortly after that, um, one of the collective members, Bao Lebron, um, was working at the, uh, the green market through Grand YC and received all of these donations from farmers. And, um, they were supposed to get brought back to Puerto Rico, but because of flights and all this sort of stuff, we were just like, well, what do we do with this produce that we have? And so the idea of like pickling came to mind. And so we like started to have these canning sessions where we pickle all these food. And through that, I think Queer Kitchen Brigade was born. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the idea of Queer Kitchen Brigade was uh, had been like seeded um, like years prior to the hurricane happening through this conference that Mijente had, um, that Bao had attended. And like this hashtag that like um, another chef from Puerto Rico box uses queers in the kitchen sort of popped up in that respect um but yeah then I became part of queer kitchen brigade and it was just like how do we do this work and honor these people who like suffered this terrible natural disaster um through food and how do we feed them right what is my connection to food (laughs) I grew up um with my my parents were very big on gardening so that was something that we always we always like had our own like like cilantro, basil, all these things. We we would grow a lot of like spices and stuff like that. So I know that was something that was that's always been around me. But then working, I've been working predominantly in the like the service industries, uh, usually with food. Um, so I kind of got a little bit more connected to kind of like the like making food in big amounts. You know, like when you prep, you know, you gotta cut like thirty pounds of onions. You're crying, but you know you do it and. Um, that kind of, I don't know, that kind of work just resonated with me. It resonated with um, a lot of values, just like the idea of making a lot of food. I really enjoy just making big batches of food. Um, and so when I started getting involved with Queer Kitchen Brigade, it was just because Luce was just like, hey, I need to, we need to sort these packets of seeds that we're going to send to Puerto Rico. And um, I kind of just slowly started getting more and more involved. And it was just kind of work that really strongly resonated, you know. And, um, yeah, we've come a long way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) A lot has happened since 2017. Absolutely. Um, So you are known for, the Queer Kitchen Brigade is kind of known for the canning more than other things. I don't know if that's a valid thing to say. Well, it's pretty valid. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, fermentation has a kind of a history in, in queer communities. Like Sandra Katz is kind of the, the fermentation guy. Um, but what was the process of learning those techniques like and what what does it mean to you to 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 go in that direction, to, to go toward pickling and fermentation? Um, I think that, like... Pickling and fermentation is always something that I had done. Um, or just the idea of, like, preserving foods or using preservation as a means to make medicines. Like, I make tinctures all the time, and, like, that's just alcohol and herbs. And, like, um, and I think that, like, for me, it was just always this thing that I'd been interested in because it was this, like, 
science-y thing that also had to do with food and like every time I look at a pickle my mouth just waters I just have that like (laughs) effect on me and so it's always this thing that I love and then just like in the history of it um we don't often associate pickling or fermentation or preservation of foods to like Latinx culture but it's very much seated in Latinx culture I mean, uh, like, pique, uh, for instance, you know, originally, like, started off as, like, pineapple rinds in a bottle with water, like, being heated under the sun and, like, fermented that way. And when we think of things like pitorro, like, it's moonshine. Um, And so, like, it was very much so a part of my culture. And I remember my grandfather always having a bottle of pica that he was like, there was one that we used and there was one that was in process. (laughs) And like, it could have been sitting there for like three years, but we weren't allowed to touch it. Um, And so I think that like, for me, my interest in that was like, just remembering growing up and remembering him, like instilling those values in me. And then also being like, the world of fermentation, as we know it, is so white. Right. At least what we're introduced to. And so, like, how how can we use this as a way to, like, feed people, which is what, like, was it was initially about. Of, like, we're in immediate need. What's the thing that will help this situation and not spoil this food? Right. Preservation. Um, and then later on, it just became this thing of, like, how does this connect to my culture, right. actually? So, yeah. Yeah. Wait, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> um, and do you, do you think that food presents a unique kind of opportunity for, for solidarity and community action? Wait, what was it? <laughs> do you think that food, like, in general, can, can create, create kind of a unique space for like solidarity with communities in need and with for collective action oh absolutely yeah i mean i feel like if you see it even in general if you're having like some kind of meeting getting people together something that's really going to bring people together is a meal right like you get like a group of people they could be like they could have different like beliefs like opposing values but if you get a meal together that is often a really good um it just really brings out the sense of like let's just talk about it. Let's share, you know? And I feel like that's what creates the most amount of um, influence on things is being able to communicate and being able to kind of just like share your different ideals with other people and that way you can build on things and that way you can grow on things and motivate each other. Right, right, right. And so what has the response been like to the jars when when you've brought them to Puerto Rico, when you've brought them to Mexico? what What is the response like to jars of of pickled produce (laughs) (laughs) um in puerto rico i feel like people people were people were excited about it and people were happy that it was a thing that was being provided to them i think there it was like food was so scarce and like i remember leaving um leaving Puerto Rico in February for a week and coming back and like still in February like the supermarket shelves were like pretty bare and so the idea that like food was being given to them and this food was coming from farmers they were super excited um in Mexico 
I think in Mexico it was less like in Puerto Rico we presented the jars to people and like you know Pau had mailed some of the jars to like um, Centros de Apoyo Mutuo which just are centers of mutual help that were cooking these giant community meals for people and so we don't and they had sent thank you cards and stuff like that so we know that they were super happy about it um, in Mexico, it was less of like presenting jars to people. Mm-hmm. Um, we did. We ended up taking over the kitchen at this place called Enclave Caracol. Um, that's been sort of a hub for uh, the migrant caravanners. Um, you know, every single day they have like law consultations that happen there. And so there's always people in and out of the space. And they also run a chapter of Food Not Bombs out of there. And so we just had the ability to, like, take over the kitchen and actually use the stuff that we had canned in the meals that we were making, which I think was, like, the first time we had actually even done that. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, most of it was just, like, distributing food, distributing food, but us never really, like, behind the scenes cooking for people. But it also did make me realize how dynamic the idea actually was to be able to present all of these canned foods because we were able to, like... um the way that we would get produce over there was we would go to markets and um, as for merma, which is the term they use for basically food that can't be sold, but it's still edible. And so we would, it was a lot of like creativity, you know, being like, okay, this is what we have. And then this is what we have canned. And it was a lot of like, okay, well we can mix this with this. And then we got this, you know, and like being able to understand that, like you can eat things straight out of the jar, but you can also make meals with these things, you know? Right. Yeah. We had a little bit of like, chop the awana <laughs> like, yeah Holly would come back i think we had like at one point we had like four cases of avocado and like five cases of cucumber yeah. and i was like lead point person in the kitchen for just being like this is what our menu is gonna be and just like telling the volunteers things that we needed help with but then just sitting there being like <laughs> thinking and like Ollie just being like what are we gonna do and I'm like oh we're gonna do this and then this and then this and then this and like even one of the like collective members of Enclave Caracol Ellie who's like a sweetheart was just like you came up with that menu really fast <laughs> like I just think on my feet that's what I'm good for <laughs> Uh, can you discuss, because you were in Puerto Rico for a while after the hurricane and working on act, like actually doing work restoring farms. Uh, mm-hmm. What was that like and what were you doing there? Um, <laughs> it was really intense. Yeah. Um, I had always had this like idea that I wanted to go back to Puerto Rico and to live there. Right. Um, and so... Um, I had the opportunity to, like, have this job organizing volunteers who wanted to help out on restoring farms on the island. Um, And they were from all over. Um, But it was really intense. It was really intense to live there. And, you know, I always, like, while I was living there, it was always, like, this feels traumatizing in a lot of different ways. And, like, I feel the collective pain of these people. Um, and, you know, I, but I always felt like I wasn't there during the hurricane, so, like, I didn't, have, I didn't have it as bad as these people. But, like, in retrospect, you know, I did spend a month living without water and light. 
Um, and like having people tell me that like, no, like what you're feeling is like post Maria trauma and like you have a right to claim that. Um, so it was really intense living there, but a lot of the work was going to these farms and talking to these farmers and doing land assessments with them in terms of like what they needed, um, on their farms in order to get back up and running or just like even begin the process of being back in production because the idea was that we wanted to get them back into the farmer's markets as soon as possible um, because 90% of the food on the island is imported. Um, and I th at the time of the hurricane, it was like 100% of the food. Um, and so that was a lot of the work that I was doing there, and it was just like creating these like really personal relationships with these people who had lost everything, and in a lot of ways it was holding their trauma for them, and in a lot of ways it was like some of these people like hadn't been back onto their farm since before the hurricane had happened, and so it was just like reintroducing them to this place in this different way, but then also like a lot of regrowth and just like showing them that, like, they still have a chance and that, you know, their options for survival are still there and, like, look at this community of people who are here to help you do this thing. Um, and so it was really beautiful in a lot of ways also, and there are, like, a lot of fun times and a lot of really, like, interesting ways of, like, construction that happens there. And I think that, like, there was also, like, this, like, re-education because a lot of the volunteers were white. Right. And so it was just, like, which was, you know, a learning experience for them in terms of, like, they're used to having a certain standard of construction or farming or whatever it is there. But, like, you know, Carlos Lago, the, like, 70-year-old farmer who spent 20 years of his life on this farm, like, using a lawnmower instead of a, like tractor to like <laughs> you know cut down these tall grasses it was just like amazing and hilarious and you know the group from vermont who are part of this like co cooperative called buffalo mountain um they were just like in awe and in shock at like the ability that this man had in terms of like using tools that like aren't aren't you know quote unquote traditionally used in like agriculture in the United States. Um, so it was just a lot of that when I was there. Cool. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, it was very, you know, it, it was a very, like, immersive experience, you know. We, we were, um, we had, like, prepared everything. Everything was, like, organized in a very specific way. We would, like, bring food and make sure that everybody was, like, like, we would all just, like, cook in the right. farms and all of that. And, um share meals together which I thought was a really really like wonderful way to like start the day and um it was a lot of you know like throwing a pickaxe into the ground and just like digging things <laughs> up and like you know moving things around it was a lot of like really like hard work but it really makes you realize like it's hard work it's a lot of hard work and a lot of these people do it you know like on their own right. and like seeing seeing the after effects of of every of the of the after the hurricane you know um 
I remember um, all of the farmers that we did uh, speak to, they would all make comments about like, I used to not be able to see that house over there. Right. I didn't even realize I had so many neighbors because of all of the <laughs> the nature that was there. Right. It was also it was also like a different experience for you because your mom was born in Puerto Rico. Yes. And so like you were going back to this place that your mom was born in yeah, for the was... first time ever. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Wow, it was your first time ever there? Yeah, yeah it was my first been... time. Yeah. What we was realized that like? it was it was very interesting because um you know like i remember having a conversation with my mother on the rooftop of this place that we were staying at and her being like oh yeah i was born in this hospital two blocks from where you are right now Shit. you know and um kind of like realizing and making connections because my grandfather was also he was exiled from the dominican republic and he lived in puerto rico and he stayed in this place called miramar which was like down the street from where i was at and i remember skating past that place to get to where this place i was trying to go to and just feeling like this sense of like whoa like this place that i you know never felt i had such strong connection to but like you know seeing it and being there and like feeling it was very was very intense you know yeah. And had you been there many times before? Oh, yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. Um, what were some differences you noticed from, from earlier visits? Like, Oh, I mean, just the the energetics, in, in the energetic sense of the yeah. island. I'm about to get real woo-woo. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> I mean, energetically, there is, there is just a big difference. Um, I... In my visits to Puerto Rico, um, I, you know, I had been going um, with my family predominantly. And I think up until like 2012, I had only gone to Puerto Rico with my family, which is such a different experience than going by yourself. And so I was always like in the mountains in Morovis at my grandmother's house and like visiting family that I only ever saw once a year. Um, and so, um, going there and being there after the hurricane, there was less of this, like, the joy of, like, being on the island had sort of, like, dissipated to varying degrees, but there was also still this, like, huge sense of resiliency. Right. Um, and, you know, like, the people that weren't going to, like, see this through had already left, or who couldn't see this through, because, you know, I don't blame anyone for ha needing to leave the island, um, you know, under colonialism, like, things like that happen, and they force you to leave, um, but the individuals who did stay and had the, like, resolve to stay were just so resilient and just set on building this thing from the ground up in the way that they wanted to see it prosper, and so I think that, like, it was just, like, a completely different experience in terms of, like, having only spent time there with my family um, and, like, not really having a community of people there um, in terms of, like, queer community, very specifically. Um, and then, like, you know, after 2012, starting to go there more on my own and then, like, going there after the hurricane and, like, seeing all of these people who I, like, have been in community with for some time... Um, and just talk to them about, like, in particular, like, how the queers survived. And, you know, just, like, at 4 p.m. every single day, they would meet at this, like, 
one restaurant in Rio Piedras and like if no one if like one person didn't show up then like there was a problem and they would go searching for them or just like the ways in which people develop methods of like checking in and community accountability were so different um and so like those were you know those were most of the like differences that I saw there totally and so the queer kitchen brigade and I don't I don't know how, whether you eat meat, either of you are <laughs> <laughs> coming to the, the big question now, but, um, you did work with food, not bombs in Mexico. Food, not bombs is specifically a vegan, mm-hmm. um, organization. So, but, and I've only seen you work with vegetables. So, but like, what is the role of like animal labor and animal products in like, what are politically motivated movements? You know, like where, where do you see like, meat or dairy or eggs in in terms of like do do animals have a role in what you do not necessarily in queer kitchen brigade i don't think so we don't like with the food that we make it's i feel like it's almost always been vegan food yeah even with the meals that we make um it's it's mostly vegan yeah i don't think it's even ever been vegetarian um yeah no it it oddly has been vegan i mean in in my personal life, I'm gonna coin this term from an earlier podcast of yours. I I do identify as a flexitarian, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but um, I, I generally in the day to day in my day to day like will not like I don't eat meat, right. um, and so but like Queer Kitchen Brigade has like really only worked with vegetables. I mean, animal. Animals' contribution to, like, vegetables, like, it's always going to be there, you know, bees pollinating plants and, like, that sort of thing. But in, like, the direct connection up to, like, Queer Kitchen Brigade and the meals that we've historically made, I think there was, like, one, like, sopa de jamón, like, a ham soup that Bao had made at, like, a queer soup night. Um, But I don't, I wasn't there. Um, but I don't, I think we leave it up to the collective members. I think like, because I don't generally eat meat, I'm less likely to cook that for people. Um, and when I met Ollie, Ollie was a vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was vegan for like five years, but now I'm vegetarian. You know, I can't get enough of the egg and cheeses. (laughs) That's a big one for me. (laughs) What inspired you to go vegan? Um... I think I was like 17 years old and I had just like had torn my ACL and had to like, I was like six months, like unable to like do the things that I was uh, accustomed to doing. And that kind of like when I was able to run again, it was like a big thing for me. And I was just like, wow, health, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, maybe, you know, I was trying to like work my way through like kind of like eating better for my body and trying to take care of myself more. But out of just like habit, it just kind of like stayed with me for a very Mm -hmm. long time. But then I actually I remember that I had started going vegetarian when we were in Puerto Rico because it was a lot of like, you know, I'm I'm not about to like be picky with what I eat right here, you know. And then, um, yeah, I think that's that was, yeah, five years of that. And then (laughs) Puerto Rico changed it all. Yeah. Why do you stay vegetarian? What 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 connection do you have to not eating meat? Is it more ethical or is it more what what are the reasons? 
I think it's a combination. I think I've also just grown accustomed to it, yeah. and it's just an easier way for me to. I, I, don't, I don't think I can even make a chicken right <laughs> <laughs> right now. You know, like. <laughs> but um, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of you know. Uh, you know, like with with like the the um, like the political beliefs that comes behind like veganism. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on like, oh, you know, like you're, you know, if you're not a vegan, whatever you're doing, this animal cruelty, this, this, and that. But I also feel like, you know, there's just some people <laughs> that really <laughs> be caring more about animals than yeah. they do care about people of color. Uh huh. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and that kind of shifts my desire to be. Um, Focusing on putting focusing energy on that when I could be focusing my energy on other things that I prioritize. Of course, yeah. And when did you start to eat less meat, Luz? Um, I started when I was like seventeen. Also, that <laughs> I remember being like, "Dad, <laughs> I'm a vegetarian," and he'd be like, "Chicken wing." <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't think you understand what that means. Fish. No, and like, and and it's like this, like I think it's almost like this trope actually, because I've spoken to several like Latinx or like BIPOC individuals who are friends of mine who like have gone vegan or vegetarian, and like there's just this like story that some of us have of like telling our parents that like we're not eating meat anymore, and then like giving you a sideways look. And then being like, chicken's not meat. <laughs> yeah. Fish isn't meat. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't think you actually know what this means. <laughs> um, but I started when I was like 17. And then was like on and off for a really long time. Um, and then like more strictly, I would say like in the past like three to five years or so, um, probably more like three years, um, I've just like started to like, not eat as much meat and not incorporate it as much into my diet because there's just so many delicious vegetables in the world mm. that I haven't tried. But also, like, you know, if I'm in a place where, like, meat is a very cultural thing, right. I'm not going to not try it because that's just disrespectful. Mm. Um, and also, like, I do want the experience of, like, tasting different things that I've never had before in my life. Right. Um, so that's sort of that whole journey <laughs> yeah so I've asked this question of a few people who do a lot of organizing and 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 work work more closely you know with uh bringing communities together but what you you have actually like worked on a farms that have endured like terrible circumstances and you've seen what it's like when a food supply gets completely cut off. So what to you does a functional food system look like? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there has to, like, a functional food system in, in respect to Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. um, I think that there has to be food production on the island. And there has to be, like, the majority of the food that people are consuming on the island needs to be produced on the island. Um, and I think that, like, that, that will help, na like, when natural disasters happen, that will help sort of mitigate those issues. Um, I, in terms, like, a functioning food system, 
I don't think I've seen one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, I've I've traveled, uh, you know, I was just recently in Europe and like went to farms there and like I've traveled and seen various different types of food systems. And there are tons of things that like work on different ones that I would totally like pick and choose from. But in terms of like a holistic food system, I haven't seen one yet. Um, but I also think that like, Food production needs to be put into the hands of the people who don't have access right. to it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, historically, we've built the United States agricultural system on the backs of black and brown people, and yet they're the ones who don't have access to these things. And so, like, bringing power back into those people's hands is something that needs to happen as a way to like heal from trauma and like heal with the land and as a way to to just give them some sort of like economic opportunities right. um, in that respect. So my answer is that I don't know what a food system <laughs> looks like. <laughs> Yeah, um, I feel like I don't know what that looks like specifically under capitalism. Of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there needs to be some adjustments there in yeah. order for yeah. There's no ethical food system under capitalism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, what is next for Queer Kitchen Brigade? We have a couple events coming up, right? Yeah. Um, so we're helping cook. There's going to be a group of community chefs cooking at. Um, Leah Pennyman wrote a book called uh, Farming While Black, and there's a book launch at the Mayday Space in Brooklyn, New York, so we're going to be helping out in the kitchen with that. It's from two to five? Yeah. We're also, on February 3rd, we're also um, helping out, like, we're helping out at various events, like book launches and movie screenings um, in the kitchen. Um, And then we also have another trip plan to Puerto Rico. Nice. (laughs) Um, So we're in the process of sort of planning that out, but we're taking, it's going to be a group of like six to eight of us um, going down to Puerto Rico, working specifically on a farm called Finca Flamboyant. Um, That's a queer land project in Puerto Rico. Um, And then visiting other uh, projects and individuals who have farms that I got to know through my work there. Right. So... What do you, and beyond that, what do you have any, do you have any, I mean, you know, it's, it's a silly question, but like, what is, you know, what's a goal? Do you have any goals in terms of what you, what you can do? I mean, we did want to talk about that. Um, those meals, those meals that we want to organize potentially. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of our goals right now, um, it's hard to like say what's, What's the goal for Queer Kitchen Brigade? Because we are a decentralized collective, so there are other Mm. people involved who are doing other things in other places. Um, I think the goal for, like, us, too, as a part of the collective, is to just start being more present in terms of, like, feeding communities, particularly communities of color, so organizing community meals in various places. Um, We definitely want to go back down to Mexico again and work with those folks down there. Um, but just figuring out how to feed people, how to educate people on like food preservation, um, and um, and yeah, just sort of continuing that work of like how can we prepare 
communities most affected by climate uh, disasters um, through food, whether it's preservation or or other ways of cooking or teaching people how to live without meat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you both so much for being here.